Listen now to the Word of God, Romans 14, beginning on page 948, if you're using the Pew Bible. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So reads the word of God. 
And what an amazing text of scripture this is. We have had a good time together studying Romans 14, I believe, over these past four weeks. We've taken it in unusual bites, following more the paragraph flow from our English Standard Version of the Bible than what we would label a, a true exegetical outline from the original text. But that's, that's beside the point. We've done that in order to be able to focus on different ones of these principles, to divide them out into paragraphs where we see these different principles as they emerge from the text. This approach has yielded the opportunity to give more focused attention to to poignant statements like the ones we just heard together. It is before one's own master that he stands or falls. We each answer to God, we don't answer to one another. Or if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We're living for him. He's the one who rewards us. He's the one who has given us life. That's verse 4 and then verse 8. It's another in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we get off on these subjects, we're away from the heart of the matter, even though it's a very important subject to consider. Today, we get another one in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Like, really? Which one of us, for the sake of food, would destroy the work of God? Wow. Friends, that's a more challenging question than you might expect. Which one of us, for the sake of food, would destroy the work of God? I would say apart from the grace of God, every single one of us would do it. Every one of us. And even with the grace of God, sometimes it's hard to grasp how it is that we do that. How it is that we destroy the work of God for the sake of fleeting pleasure like food. Surely there are more such statements in this passage because this passage is chock full of life principle type statements. Romans 14 is just a, a, a treasure chest. It's a, it's a gold mine of those kinds of statements. How do we live in relation to one another. What does the love of God look like in our relationships with one another? How does it characterize us? How do we treat one another when the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit by trusting in Christ as Savior? How does it it work? Well, we need this extended exercise in Romans 14 because we forget. We forget the answer to that question. We forget what it looks like to love one another in this way. This is just what we need on this topic is this kind of review because as we've seen since the very beginning of chapter 12, what Paul is teaching us here doesn't come to us very naturally and doesn't come to us very easily. Simple and clear as it is, it doesn't come naturally or easily. In fact, it's hard for us even to get our minds around much of what he has told us here. And we'll unpack that together to see why that is. 
It's hard for us even to get our minds around what he's told us here. Things like present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Really familiar statement. But do we really understand what that means? Or think of yourselves according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Chapter 12, verse 3. Think of yourself according to the measure of faith God has assigned. That means not according to any other measure. We think of ourselves according to the saving grace God has given us and the spiritual gift he's given us to serve him. That's our self-concept. That's how we understand ourselves. It's not our vocation. It's not our bank balance. It's not the circle of friends we're a part of. It's not the level of acclaim we've been able to attain in this life. It's not the degree, the degree to which people are familiar with our name out in the world. The basis of understanding who we are as people. What we're reading in Romans 14 is built on that foundation of Romans 12 that we're thinking of ourselves according to the measure of faith God has given more important than anything else about me is that I've been called by God into his family and I'm a child of his. He saved me by his grace. That's the most important thing about me. And, and the, the one that follows that is however he's gifted me to be used in the body of Christ. That's my identity. That's who I am. None of the other things that I might be proud of or put on a resume there's a creator God in this universe and the highest testimony about any of us is with regard to our relationship to him. That's it. That's what it means. That's the foundation for Romans 14 back in chapter 12. Think of yourselves according to the measure of faith God has assigned. How about this one from chapter 12 verse 20? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him, give him something to drink. There's our calling. We are so free in Christ from the ensnarements of this world that we can treat even our enemies as though they were friends and God's work is accomplished by it. No damage comes to us whatsoever. In fact, we are set apart from this world in remarkable ways and God's gospel work is being done in the heart of another, the heart of an enemy by receiving the love of a Christian. Wow. It's an amazing statement. Simple to read. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something great. Absolutely. What does verse 21 say? Get, let's move on. That's not easy to do, is it? You can answer. That's not just rhetorical. That's not easy to do. Is it? How about be subject to governing authorities? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that one. Be subject to governing authorities. Let love be your motive in your response to government. Even when it comes to the place where resistance might be in order. Make sure it's motivated by love so that it's not worthless. How about make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? Chapter 13, verse 14. 
Again, simple, straightforward statement. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Pay no attention to what your heart yearns for that's just self-gratifying and not to the praise of God's glory. Make no provision for that. Don't give any opportunity for your flesh to do that. And how about chapter 14, verse 1? Welcome the weak. Those who disagree with you on matters of your personal freedom. Welcome the weak, but not to quarrel over opinions. Even though with Paul, chapter 14, verse 14, we're persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself. That means even though we know from Scripture that we're right, we should still stop short of urging another to honor what's right. To live it out. To just do it by faith and let their conscience catch up. We should stand back from that. We should stop short of that as an expression of love. Because this is a disputable matter. It's not a matter of central importance to the gospel. So easy to say. So hard even to receive and understand. Not to mention to grasp and hold on to and exercise. This section of scripture is stunning in its instruction. We should stop short of correction in that situation as an expression of love because this is a disputable matter. We can differ on how we see it even though there's a right and wrong answer about it. We can differ on how we see it and that difference is what gives us the setting in which we can test ourselves to see whether we truly love our neighbor as ourselves. There's our testing ground right there. Disputable matters when we differ from one another. To test whether we truly love our neighbor as, we, as ourselves, whether we truly love one another more deeply than we love our freedom in Christ. Is your well-being in Christ more important to me than my freedom in Christ? There's the test of the love for the body of Christ for one another. There's the gospel taking root. The gospel that's unpacked so meticulously and carefully in this whole letter to Romans. Here's what it's supposed to produce in us. And that's hard for us to understand how we can be more devoted to one another's spiritual growth than we are even to the enjoyment of our own freedoms. But that's what Paul is calling us to. It's why it's hard to hold on to. In our minds, as it sits there unattended for a while, it gets twisted and distorted into something else, and it comes out sideways, and it ends up creating conflict in the church rather than unity and mutual love. Because I don't want to give up my freedoms. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And I don't want your sensitivity, especially when I know you're wrong, to stand in the way of it. But that's the instruction of chapter 14. That's what the gospel looks like when it takes root in our hearts. 
So it's hard for us to understand. And once we understand it, it's hard for us to hold on to that understanding. It just feels counterintuitive to us that anything can come in ahead of truth in the Christian life. But now we need to say this carefully, but we need to say it. Love does come in ahead of truth in the Christian life. It does. And if I need a personal conversation with you to prove that, I'd be glad to have that. That would be a joy. Because we're talking about the deep things of the word. It's hard for us even to imagine that anything can come in ahead of truth in the Christian life. But love does. Love comes in ahead of the truth. Not in the sense, now hear me here. Not in the sense of making truth less important, less true, and still less, meaning that we lay aside the truth as long as we're being loving. Because I would propose to you that whenever we think we're being loving and the result is that we set aside the truth, that's not love at all. That's just sort of a warm sentimentality. That's not really wanting to bear the weight of being loving. That's not wanting to stand up and do the hard work of defending the truth and speaking the truth in love. We cower from that because we're not very good at it and it requires some things that are very hard to develop in us to actually speak the truth in love. It's hard work. But love comes in ahead of truth for reasons that Scripture itself establishes. We can and we must say two things about love and truth. First, we must say that at times we suspend our defense of the truth for the sake of love. That's what Paul's teaching us in this passage. That's what makes it so challenging to hold on to. It's, it's working against spiritual muscle memory for us to think that this is true. There are times where we must suspend our defense of the truth for the sake of love. Verse 20, everything is clean. There's the truth. Next word, but. It is wrong for anyone to, take another, to make another stumble by what he eats. Two parts of the verse, right there in verse 20. Everything is clean. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. There's something more important then than the bare truth that everything is clean. Namely, the heart with which we hold that truth. The heart with which we wield that truth. The heart with which we apply that truth and defend that truth. When a weaker conscience is involved, we suspend our defense of the truth out of love. Precisely because how we view clean and unclean is a disputable matter. It's not central. We can hold different views on it. We can each think differently about it. 
not at all meaning the truth that everything is unclean becomes untrue, but meaning that for a wide variety of reasons, it is not a truth that everyone can understand equally well, and it's not a truth that everyone can immediately embrace with a clear conscience. And we would have to add, not one that they can perhaps ever embrace with a clear conscience. Nick gave us such a great example of this a couple of weeks ago. With his friend, his Muslim friend, who discovered that pork is processed in the place where Slim Jims are made. That brother comes to saving faith in Christ and walks with the Lord for years. It's quite possible that he will still never eat Slim Jims. Why? Because it's wrong? No. It's right. Everything's clean. But there's a sensitivity that has been inbred that makes that a violation of conscience. Just the thought of letting something pass my lips that has that quality to it. So it's not a truth that everyone can equally understand. It's not a truth that everyone can immediately embrace or perhaps ever embrace with a clear conscience. So instead of affirming and insisting on the truth that everything is clean, this is one of the places where we bear with one another, to borrow the language of Ephesians 4, we bear with one another in love with all humility and gentleness and patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's how we do it. One of the biggest ways that we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is wrapping truth in love when it comes to disputable matters within the body of Christ. We love one another. And we withhold a challenge toward truth apart from perhaps just discussing it together. And helping our brother or sister realize that, you know what? Pork can be eaten. But you know what else? If from your background, pork has such a profound influence on you that you can't eat it with a clear conscience, I'm good. I'm good with you. Let's not let that separate us. As a matter of fact, when you're around, I won't eat pork. I don't want to do that. I don't want to put that in front of you. I don't want to flaunt my freedom. We'll get back to that word in a few minutes. So instead of affirming and insisting on the truth, this is one of the places where we bear with one another in love with all humility and gentleness, just quoting from the text there in Ephesians 4, with patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That leads us to the second thing that we have to make sure we know. Remember the first one was, we must at times suspend our defense of truth for the sake of love. The second thing we need to say is that love must envelop our expression of truth because love is what prioritizes between competing truths, especially with regard to disputable matters. It's love that makes the decision on which truth I act on here and how I act on them in combination with one another. And this is not new. We know this. We know it clearly from the Word of God. We, we, we can quote it from the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. The absolute essential importance of the motivation of love in everything we do. 
That it's all done from a heart of love, which just is meaning a heart that has trusted Christ as Savior and has been transformed into his likeness. He has poured out his love upon us in the Holy Spirit. He's given us his love such that our love for God expresses itself in a love for this world, our love for neighbor as ourselves, such that when we're acting on any other basis, we're not acting on the basis of the gospel. The gospel isn't motivating our actions. We know this from Scripture. It's just hard in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, it's hard in Romans 14 type scenarios to remember it and apply it. We know, for instance, that if we speak with the tongues of angels, even if we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, even if we have all faith so that we can move mountains, but don't have love, the scripture says, we're nothing. We're nothing. We gain nothing. We're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It means one that's just being hit and isn't being used as part of a musical composition. We can even be a martyr for the faith. But if it's not from a motive of love, we've achieved nothing. That's scripture. That's the place of love. That's the place it takes in shaping who we are, how we think, how we talk, how we relate, how we care for one another. This, my friends, this is a deep truth from God's word. Amen? It's a challenging one. It's hard to grasp and even harder to retain, but this is what Christian love looks like. This is what Christianity looks like. This is the love that Jesus himself modeled for us. He, he displays this very sort of humble, gentle, patient love. He displays it toward us and and we see that in this very text. The very next verses after the ones we handle today, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 15, give us this with clarity. Look where we go. I'm going to just walk through it. Just let your finger drag down the page a little bit there. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, but because that's what Jesus did, we might say. That's where he goes. Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. We could say he didn't use his position as a stronger brother to gratify himself or even satisfy himself. Philippians 2. But he laid down his life. He assumed the guilt. He became guilty for the guilt of the sinner. That's counterintuitive as well. He laid down his life, assuming guilt for those who were not only weak in their faith, like he's calling us to do here, but dead in their sins. Those are the ones he laid down his life for. Those are the ones for whom he became guilty. That's what happens when we trust Christ as Savior. You recognize that? That's a stunning thought. He becomes guilty of our sins legally before God. 
Think of the list of sins that could fill your mind from your own history. You don't have to go to anybody else's life right now. When you've trusted Christ as Savior, Jesus becomes guilty of all of that on your behalf and has paid the penalty for it at the cross so that you can receive by faith his righteousness and be viewed before God, be viewed in the eyes of God as just as holy as Jesus himself. That's how the gospel works. Jesus took on our sin, though he was not guilty for it. He wrapped the truth in love and said, I know you're guilty. Let me cover it. I know you're weak. Let me cover it. Do you see the connection? We're just living the life of Jesus when we wrap the truth in love. So many options are there when we wrap the truth in love. So few when we have to stand on bare truth alone. So few options. It's, 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 it's syllogistic in its breakdown. It's either or. It's binary. Until love comes into the picture. And then, wow, truth in the hands of genuine godly love. Love that doesn't wink at sin. Love that doesn't excuse sin. Love that demands payment for sin. But recognizes that there are options that love generates that truth couldn't find on its own. Amazing. Amazing truths. So we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. He didn't use his position to gratify himself. He laid down his life for those who were not only weak in faith, but dead in sin. As it is written in that text, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Praise God they have. Amen? Amen. Well, today's passage finishes off Paul's instruction on this kind of love. That was my introduction, by the way. All right? Now we're getting into the text. Right? Today's passage, I'm serious, all right? In my notes, I just finished my introduction, okay? Today's passage finishes off Paul's instruction on this kind of love that should characterize our relationships with one another. One another in the body of Christ. Before adding in the unity that chapter 15 introduces that unity that facilitates such a mature expression of love. So this is a brief paragraph, 20 to 23. It's, it's referenced in, in each of the sermons so far in chapter 14. So we're a bit familiar with it, which is why I've spent more time in the introduction than I'm probably going to spend on the exposition of the rest of the chapter. We're just going to walk through it quickly, what it says to us, what it gives us. But because this simple, clear, familiar passage is so challenging for Christians to grasp and process and retain, we're going to give one final voice to this concluding paragraph today, and we're going to walk through it as a single unit. 
right? You ready? Paul opens his mini conclusion here, his subtotal, as we called it a few moments ago, with a direct charge. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And we take a step back and we say, wow, that is a strong statement. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. We wouldn't think we'd be capable of that, but we are. In short, though, if we fail to envelop in love our understanding of truth, if we don't do what we've been talking about so far with regard to disputable matters, we are working against the gospel. We are destroying the work of God. We're impeding the work of the Holy Spirit and destroying the work of God. That's what Paul is telling us here. And we're doing it only for the sake of food, literally in this scenario that he presents. We're doing it for the sake of food, essentially in principle, so that we can enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ and not be hindered by the sensitivity a brother or sister might feel about that food. But that's not the way it should be. Paul explained this point more fully and directly in his first letter to Corinth. You can even flip over there for a moment if you would like. Page 956 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 8, he goes at this a little more directly and a, and a, a little more clearly even, I would say. In verse 8 there, he starts saying, food will not commend us to God, period. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. All right, so the strong person in Romans 14 is indeed right. We are no better off if we abstain. We are no better off if we eat. It doesn't make a difference, these disputable matters. They're not the gospel. But food just isn't the issue. That's more what Paul is saying. Self-sacrificing love for a sensitive brother or sister is the issue. Or we might say love from one who's presented his body as a living sacrifice is the issue. I would propose to you that until we get to chapter 14, we might not even have a clear idea of what it means that we've presented our bodies as a living sacrifice and are being transformed by the renewal of our mind. We might, we might not have a clear idea of what it looks like until we actually have the opportunity to sacrifice something. Namely, our right view with regard to this disputable matter that's before us. Am I a living sacrifice or not? Depends on how I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ if I'm doing so in a self-sacrificing manner. Paul continues on here, verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 8. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This freedom of yours. Take care that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Can you note here that the problem is not identified as the weaker one eating in violation of his conscience. It's one of the ways that we can distort this a bit. There's a different scenario being presented here. It's not talking primarily about one eating in violation of his conscience. That's the outcome, sure. I want to separate it from that. But the scenario that's been put in our minds is not, imagine that that one comes over and sits down and eats with you. That's not the picture that Paul gives here. 
He's seeing you eat such that he may be encouraged to eat. There's the language. Be encouraged to eat in violation of his conscience. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Same root as we have in Romans 14. By your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. So Jesus has died for his sins, but we can't excuse his weakness. That's the contrast that's being set up here. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is, straightforward. Destroying the work of God. That's what we see here, right here in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Bottom line, back in Romans 14, we need to recognize, verse 21, that it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes our brother to stumble. It is good. We have, it is wrong, now it is good. Here's good. Not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Caring for my brothers and sisters in Christ is more important to me than my own gratification. That might be a way to say it. Setting aside the expression of my own legitimate freedom in Christ in order to keep you from violating your conscience, not only from that, but even from being put in the place where your conscience is unexpectedly tested. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 8 is giving us. That is one of the ways that I show my love for you and that I protect the unity of the body. To put these thoughts together from Romans 12 through 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and, and Ephesians 4, to put them all together into a lump, together with Colossians 3 and, and other passages in the New Testament. Setting aside the expression of my own legitimate freedom in Christ in order to keep you not just from violating your own conscience, but even from being put in a place where your conscience is unexpectedly tested. They walked by and saw you eating in an idol's temple. That is one of the ways that I show my love for you and protect the unity of the body. That's what Paul here calls good. That's right. It's true. Even in light of other things that are mentioned here that are also true. And that is so because of something else we recognize here about truth. Without even beginning to undercut absolute truths like the holiness of God and the deity of Christ, there are some truths that vary from one situation to another in how we express or exercise them. Eating meat and drinking wine right here are two of those truths. It's surely true that everything is clean, verse 20. But it's still wrong 
to eat meat or drink wine in certain situations. Not because either of these activities becomes sinful in and of itself, but because they're sinful for some and not for others. That's hard for us to grasp. They're sinful for some and not for others based on each one's conscience. That's what our final verse is telling us here in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And Here's that principle. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's sin for the weaker brother, but not for the stronger. That's what we get here from the word of God, from the page. It's sin for the weaker brother, but not for the stronger. So the one whose conscience is strong should joyfully limit his freedom as an expression of love for any whose conscience is weak. That's how we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the body of Christ. Verse 17, just look back at it for a moment. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the point he's been building. It's about our enjoying God is what Paul is telling us here, really. That's the truth that stands behind all of this and gives us the freedom and the power to actually do it, to hear this and respond to it with obedience. It's about enjoying God and living for His glory like we really do delight in Him and not just in the many good gifts, the many freedoms that He grants us. It's not that that we enjoy. It's Him that we enjoy such that if we have to give that stuff away... I get to do what Jesus did. Bring it on. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm glad I got a glass of water before I came up here. So in the language of Paul, as he's drawing this whole argument to a conclusion in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. There's the heart of the matter. There's our satisfaction. That's what enables us to do it. We've lost nothing that matters to us, nothing that brings us joy. We've actually gained joy by limiting our freedom for the sake of one another and enjoying the work of Christ among us, supporting it and not destroying it. The instruction we should hear then is what Paul says to the strong, since that's all of us here, <laughs> You with me on that? That should have been funnier at this stage of this message <laughs> than you suggested to me that it was. So. The instruction we should hear then is what Paul says to the strong. Verse 22. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. We know from other texts that this does not mean don't share your faith. That's not what Paul is saying here at all, not in context. What he's saying here is more like that word I used earlier, don't flaunt your freedom. This, this faith you have, this strength you have, this understanding you have, keep it between yourself and God. Don't, don't flaunt it. Don't feel the need to draw your weaker brother or sister along by displaying your freedom in front of them. Reminding them that they too could be enjoying meat and wine. 
That's not how it works. Correction is not the primary aim here, even though our conscience can be strengthened and grow over time. Such the thing that violates our conscience when we're younger in the faith might not as we grow in Christ. That can happen. But even though that can happen, that's not the calling. Forbearing. Joyfully self-sacrificing. Love. Is the primary calling here. Even if that means I will never eat meat again. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 13. That's what brings glory to God. And that's Paul's word here in a statement that I believe is made to the strong and to the weak alike as verse 22 comes to an end. The second half of verse 22 finishes his statement to the strong in the first part of verse 22 and it introduces his statement to the weak in verse 23 in this subtotal of a conclusion. So I have saved it to the end. Verse 22b finishes those statements making it a sort of hinge statement in this passage. And what do we read there? Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. There's the word of instruction that we can take with us. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now it's pretty clear how this applies to the weak by this point in the passage. If they eat or drink in violation of their conscience, they have reason to pass judgment on themselves for what they approved. That's easy enough to see. But it can escape us. It can escape us how this applies to the strong. And it shouldn't. In short, if the strong do not keep between themselves and God the faith that they have, if they flaunt their freedom before the weak, not just potentially leading them into the sin of indulgence and violation of their conscience, but I would say even worse, putting them in the place where their weakness is spotlighted, forcing them to make a decision either to reaffirm and strengthen their commitment to their weakness or to violate their conscience by acting like the strong, then in this situation, the strong now has reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. He hasn't been loving. The truth hasn't been wrapped in love. Either he feels the need to flaunt his freedom before the weak, or, or worse, he puts them in the place where they're struggling. And I, I either need to double down in my weakness, or I need to act like the strong in violation of my conscience. And what do I do? Do you see how unloving that is to a brother or sister in Christ? It's heartbreaking. This one has chosen to express his freedom rather than his love for God and for his weaker brother and in so doing is destroying the work of God for the sake of food. Do you see? God, help us not do that. Help us not do that to one another. 
Brothers and sisters, please do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Or any other expression of freedom. And even as I say that so directly, just as directly as Paul did, I feel the need to let you know that I, that the elders, believe that we as a body are doing very well in many of these areas, taking care of one another, loving one another well in these areas. We're addressing this matter and pressing on it as hard as we are here in Romans 14, not because we see it as a problem among us so much as because this is the passage that teaches these things most comprehensively. And even though it's an area of such profound importance to protecting the unity of the body, it is so easy to forget it, to let it slip, to begin thinking and acting very differently in the body of Christ. And so we need to press hard on it while we're here. We just need to be so diligent to protect this deep and rich and mature and unique Christian expression of love among us. To pursue it, to see it developed to the praise of God's glory. We need to guard against the ever-present temptation to let any of our favorite truths take on the nature of absolute truth such that we begin to hold one another accountable to it in our relationships within the body. We need to avoid that. And you know what's amazing about this expression of love? The ones closest to us The ones closest to us, the ones we love the most deeply are the ones we're most inclined to hold to our personal standards of truth. So the more we love one another, actually the more we're tempted to go the wrong direction with Romans 14. Because in other passages, we're called to challenge sin in one another. Hebrews 3, it's an important part of life in the body. But so is increasingly recognizing disputable matters so that we Honor the word of God and how we live it. The ones closest to us are the ones we're most inclined to hold to our personal standards of truth. It's this kind of commitment that can drive a wedge, for instance, between husbands and wives as they establish and grow their life together. As they decide on priorities and the values of their home as they set and enforce the behavioral standards for their children. This kind of thing can seep right in there and separate. Here at church, the same is true. It's the ones we're growing to love like family with whom it's so hard for us to tolerate differing ideas in matters that we hold strongly. (laughs) It gets harder the more you love one another. How we should educate our children in what context? Home, Christian school, public school? Whether we should get up at night when they cry or not. For any age, whether we should be inoculated against what diseases? 
Politics is another category. It's the most challenging one, I think. Especially in these days of such deep divide in our nation, the pressure to take sides. It's just so easy to get ourselves in the place where our political convictions are so interwoven with our faith that it can almost feel wrong to us to express even gospel love toward one another who thinks differently than we do. And the closer that person is to us, the harder it can become. So even while we see these things present among us in ways that, praise God, are discernible, the temptation is always there. There are always disputable matters lurking around, and there's an enemy who loves to throw them up in between us. How do we hear the word of God? Remember. Retain it. And act on it by faith. Our only hope is God himself coming in among us and enabling it, right? Do you see that? There's no way to do this unless God in his grace comes in and responds. And we say, God, we hear your word. Now enable us by your spirit to live it. Because, wow, it's beyond our imaginings. Well, these are the areas, my friends, these are the areas where we should be examining our hearts and holding to these truths. Wrapped in love. And if you will, join me now as we pray. And as we pray, musicians and communion servers can come to the front. Oh, Father, what a challenging text this is. It's one that can capture our imagination and confound our understanding and enrage our emotions all at the same time. So we just ask that you would drive it home in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would shape us in your likeness, And that apart from trying to make a to-do list to go after these different things, help us just to commit them to you in prayer and ask that by your grace you would tune us in to these opportunities to wrap truth in love, to speak the truth in love, and so grow in the likeness of Christ, just like Paul said to the Ephesian church. Just help us do that. And in so doing, to know the life of Christ and to rejoice in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.